Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, on the popular TV game show Family Feud, anybody ever seen Family Feud before? You've probably seen at least one or two episodes. Well, on the popular TV game show Family Feud, and who's the host now? Steve Harvey. Contestants are asked to guess how 100 people responded to various survey questions. While on an episode that aired 11 years ago in 2012, a contestant had to provide the top answers to the following survey question. That's up here in the monitors. When someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? What do y'all think? When someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? Elvis Presley. People said that at the last service as well. Well, here were the top four answers. 81 people said Elvis Presley. Seven people said God or Jesus. Three people said Martin Luther King Jr. And then finally two people said the Burger King. Well, I want to lay aside the other responses and focus on that second one, what seven people said, uh, God or Jesus. Uh, I think those seven people got it right, that Jesus is king, but as we're going to see in this sermon, Jesus is a different kind of king. Uh, that's the title for today's message, a different kind of king. Uh, we are in part four of our seven-part sermon series called 24 Hours That Changed the World, 24 Hours That Changed the World, based on the book of the same name by Pastor Adam Hamilton, who serves a church out in the Kansas City area. And in these messages, we are zeroing in and we are looking carefully at the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life, trying to understand the events that happened during those 24 hours, how those events changed the world forever, and how those events continue to impact us in the 21st century. And folks, the truth that Jesus is king, that Jesus is a monarch sent by God, that definitely came into focus during the last 24 hours of his life, which we're going to talk about today. Now, last Sunday morning, again, we're in part four of this seven-part series. Well, last Sunday morning, uh, we talked about Jesus' trial by the Sanhedrin. Uh, after he was betrayed by Judas in the garden, Jesus was tried by the Sanhedrin, also called the High Council. And as a reminder, the Sanhedrin slash the High Council was a council of 71. How many? 71 elders who ruled over the religious affairs of the people of Israel. And during this very unorthodox trial, and why was it unorthodox? Well, number one, it took place late at night in the high priest's home. And normally the Sanhedrin met during the day in the temple courts. It was also unorthodox because it happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And normally, the Sanhedrin never met during religious festivals. That time was supposed to be spent focusing on God. So during this very unusual, unorthodox trial, the Sanhedrin found Jesus guilty. Guilty of what crime? Blasphemy. Why? For claiming to be the Son of God and in doing so, equating himself with the God of Israel. Now, of course, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the God of Israel. The religious authorities then see it that way. 
They found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, and according to Jewish law, blasphemy is a crime punishable by death. That's what it says in the book of Leviticus, that blasphemy is a crime punishable by death. Now, here's what we have to remember. As all this was happening 2,000 years ago, this is really important to recognize, Israel was an occupied territory of the Roman Empire. And Rome ruled with an iron fist. The Roman uh, government didn't simply allow Jewish people to carry out executions. Capital punishment back then was strictly a Roman prerogative. So what happens? Once the Sanhedrin finds Jesus guilty, well, it's early Friday morning, what we now call Good Friday, just after sunrise, probably 7 a.m. or so, the religious leaders, once again, they shackle Jesus, they bind him up, they, they take him from the home of the high priest where he was being kept prisoner, and they bring him before the Roman governor of Judea. Do you remember what his name was? Pontius Pilate. And once again, as he stands before Pilate, Jesus finds himself on trial for his life. So we're primarily drawing from the Gospel of Mark in this sermon series. There are four Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these four Gospels document the story of Jesus. Well, this is how Mark records Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, the words are up here on the screen, or you can use one of the Bibles located in the pews in front of you. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council, again, this was called the Sanhedrin, met to discuss their next step because they had already found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. Okay, what are we going to do next? They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. Then the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary, who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me? To release to you this king of the Jews, Pilate asked, for he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priests stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man? You call the king of the Jews. They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Is this the word of God for the people of God to which we say? Thanks be to God. Make no mistake about it, folks. The religious leaders know exactly what they're doing. They are incredibly smart and savvy. They know that Pilate is not interested in hearing how Jesus violated Jewish law. Is Pilate Jewish? No. He doesn't care about Jewish law. He doesn't worship the God of Israel. All Pilate cares about primarily is keeping the peace and making sure that Rome stays on top, Rome reigns supreme. So, instead of focusing on the charge of blasphemy, now to be fair, 
The religious leaders do focus on this charge to a certain degree, and we see this play out in the Gospel of John. So I would encourage you, if you want to go home, compare what Mark says here in chapter 15 with how John records this trial in chapter 18 of his Gospel. In the Gospel of John, they do focus to some degree on the charge of blasphemy, but primarily their focus, and we see this here in Mark, is Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Why? Why do they focus on that? Because the word Messiah had connotations of kingship. Let's talk about this word Messiah. So the word Messiah comes from the Old Testament Hebrew, because remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, the Greek word for Messiah in the New Testament is Christos, which we translate as what? Christ. So Messiah, Christ, same concept, different translations. Messiah slash Christ literally means what? anointed one. Now keep in mind, and we mentioned this in the sermon last week, I've mentioned this in previous sermons, that Jewish culture is very visual. It's a very visual culture. And so back in the Old Testament, whenever somebody had been set apart by God, especially for the office of king, to be the ruler, well, to signify that God had set this person apart, to, to show, to demonstrate in a tangible way that God had set this person apart, do you know what would happen to that person? that person would be anointed with oil. So, for example, take a listen to what it says here in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Uh, this is from 1 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, the people of God, they don't have a king yet. They cry out to God. They say, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And so God sends the prophet Samuel uh, to Saul, and Samuel anoints Saul as Israel's first king. Listen to what it says here. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it over Saul's head. He kissed Saul and said, I am doing this. Why is he doing this? Because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. And so Samuel anoints Saul as Israel's first king. The anointing shows that Saul has been set apart to serve as king. But what happened to Saul? Saul messed up. He started out pretty good, but... He got to be disobedient. He didn't listen to God. Uh, he didn't pay attention to God's voice. So God grew frustrated with Saul, and God took the kingdom of Israel away from Saul and gave it to his successor, one of Jesse's sons, a man by the name of what? David, a man after his own heart. This is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. And the Lord said, he's speaking here to Samuel, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David. Just as he anointed Saul, he anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. So again, the word Messiah means anointed one. And typically when people were anointed, they were anointed to be king. That's why the religious leaders choose to focus on Jesus' claim to be the Messiah because, folks, by claiming to be the Messiah, Jesus is essentially claiming to be king. How would Rome feel about that? Not very good. That's a big no-no in Rome. That would mean that he's openly defying Rome because in Rome, there's only one king. Who's the king of Rome? Caesar, the emperor. At this time, that would have been Tiberius. It could also possibly mean, now, of course, Jesus wasn't doing this, but it could also possibly mean that Jesus was plotting an insurrection as Barabbas had done, a revolt against the government, as many other would-be messiahs had done. 
And Rome didn't have any tolerance for those kinds of people. They were invariably tortured and crucified. The crucifixion was primarily reserved for political criminals. Crucifixion was primarily reserved for political criminals. The crucified person would hang there on a cross. And where would the cross be located? Up on a mountain, right? Where was Jesus crucified? On Golgotha, or in Latin we call it Calvary. Uh, so everybody could see. The crucified person would hang there as a tangible reminder to onlookers, hey, listen, don't you dare come up against Rome. Don't you for one minute think that you can challenge Rome. Otherwise, this is going to be your fate. You ever seen the movie Pirates of the Caribbean? Uh, played by our, or there's Captain Jack Sparrow. He's the lead figure, the lead character. Uh, who plays him? Johnny Depp. Well, as I was working on the sermon, I was reminded of this scene from Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, Johnny Depp's character, Captain Jack Sparrow, he's a pirate, and he's on his ship, and he's sailing. Well, suddenly he comes across the corpses. This is a pretty graphic scene of pirates who have been hanged. And he sees their corpses hanging there, and there's a sign. Do you know what the sign says? Pirates, ye be warned. That was Britain's way of saying to pirates, hey, listen, don't you come around these parts plundering ships, wreaking havoc. Otherwise, this is what's going to happen to you. Crucifixion was Rome's way of squelching any kind of sedition, any attempt to challenge the empire. So these religious leaders, in a very savvy way, they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate early Friday morning. Now, who was Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. Uh, we have a map of Judea up here on the screen. Uh, Judea was one of the provinces of the Roman Empire. Uh, Pilate began serving in that post around AD 26, and he finished out around AD 36. And it's worth pointing out, Pilate did not want to be in Judea. He did not want to be there. Judea was considered backwoods. He didn't want to be around all these Jewish people. Uh, he wanted to be closer to the seat of political power. Pilate probably thought to himself, you know what? If I do a pretty good job, if I keep the peace, if no revolts happen under my leadership, well, eventually I'm going to get promoted. The emperor is going to notice me, and he's going to put me in a better post. And the place, the building, out of which Pilate ruled in Jerusalem was called the Antonia Fortress. The Antonia Fortress. It no longer exists, but this is what it would have looked like 2,000 years ago. It was Pilate's residence, and so Pilate lived there with his family. And it was also a military fortress. It provided a strong Roman presence in the heart of Jerusalem, reminding the Jewish people who was really in charge, who was really on top. And so again, the religious leaders take Jesus to Pilate at the Antonio Fortress, and they tell Pilate, hey, hey, this guy's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be king. And they also level other charges against Jesus. However, notice what Mark says here. Now, this is from the passage we read. And Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing. Much to Pilate's surprise. Usually the human response when people attack us, 
when people accuse us of doing things that we didn't do, well, the human response is to defend ourselves, isn't it? To try to maintain our good image, our reputation, our good name. Does Jesus do any of that? No. He doesn't say a word. And that silence completely throws Pilate off guard. It disorients him. Silence has a way of doing that. For example, do you know what the world's quietest room is? It's not in my house with five-year-old twins. Do you know what the world's quietest room is? The world's quietest room is actually located here in the United States of America. It's out in uh, Minnesota. It's an anechoic chamber uh, located at Orfield Laboratories in Minneapolis. In fact, we have a picture up here on the screen. Uh, this is a gentleman sitting down in this anechoic chamber. And this chamber is so quiet that the longest anybody has ever been able to be in there is 45 minutes. That's it. To my knowledge, nobody's even made it to an hour. This is what Stephen Orfield, the founder and the president of Orfield Laboratories, says about this uh, chamber. We challenged people to sit in the chamber in the dark. It's kind of creepy. One person stayed in there for 45 minutes. When it's quiet, ears will adapt. The quieter the room, the more things you hear. You'll hear your heart beating. Sometimes you can hear your lungs, hear your stomach gurgling loudly. In the anechoic chamber, you become the sound. Would anybody want to go there? This room is such a disorienting place that if you're in there for more than 30 minutes, you have to be in a chair, like that gentleman was sitting down in a chair. Pilate was so disoriented from the silence that he experiences from Jesus. I mean, surely Pilate thought to himself, why isn't this guy saying anything? Why isn't he speaking up? Why isn't he defending himself? Folks, when we read about Jesus' silence, and remember, he wasn't just silent before Pilate, he was also silent before the Sanhedrin. We talked about that last week. Well, when we read about Jesus' silence before the Sanhedrin, and then later Pontius Pilate, what becomes clear to us is Jesus was determined to die. He was determined to die. He wasn't out to defend himself. He wasn't trying to get out of a death sentence. Jesus wanted the entire city to know full well that he was going to be crucified. It's indisputable if you read the Gospels that Jesus knew that he was going to die. It's indisputable that he knew that he was going to die. Uh, remember earlier when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell to the ground, he cried out to God, he said, Father, if it's possible, please take this cup of suffering away from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. Or even earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus told the disciples on at least three occasions that when the Son of Man, and when Jesus said Son of Man, he was talking about himself, well, when the Son of Man came to Jerusalem, he would be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, he would be tortured, he would be crucified, and three days later he would rise from the dead. It could very well be the case that as Jesus stood silent before the Sanhedrin and then silent before Pontius Pilate on Good Friday morning, that he had in mind the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote the following hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand. This is from Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 7. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's past to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said what? Never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, 
he did not open his mouth. Jesus often acted intentionally to point toward or fulfill certain scriptures. Remember on Palm Sunday, he came into Jerusalem riding a donkey. Why? Well, the prophet Zechariah said that when the Messiah came to Jerusalem, he would come in in a humble way riding a donkey. It could be that Jesus was silent in order to fulfill these words that we just read from the prophet Isaiah and to see in these words a guide to his own suffering and death, that Jesus was offering himself as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world, that his death would lead to our redemption, our forgiveness, and our salvation as human beings. In fact, listen to what Isaiah says earlier in that same prophetic passage. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be healed, or so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Folks, simply put, Jesus saw his death as a sacrifice, a sacrifice that would lead to our salvation and forgiveness. But how does this happen? Why on earth did Jesus have to die? And how does his death on the cross lead to our salvation and forgiveness? For many people, this is one of the most confusing pieces of the Christian faith. Now, in theological circles, this is called the atonement. Can you say this word with me? The atonement. Uh, atonement in English literally means at one meant that Jesus' death makes us one with God. But how? How does his death make us one with God? If, you're, uh, if you appear before the Board of Ordained Ministry in our conference and you want to become a United Methodist pastor, you have to answer this question. How does Jesus' death atone for our sins? And so there's a lot that we could say here. In fact, I know Alina is working on a seminary paper right now about this very topic. Um, we're not going to get into all the specifics, all the details. Let me just say real quickly that the New Testament offers us a variety of models for thinking through the atonement. It doesn't just offer us one model. It offers to us a variety of models. Well, one model that's given to us in the New Testament, and it's a pretty popular model. You may have heard of it before. It's called substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. And here's substitutionary atonement in a nutshell. I'm not going to get as specific as Alina probably will in her paper, but this is substitutionary atonement, uh, the Cliff Notes version. All of us as human beings have sinned. As Paul says in Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul doesn't say for some have sinned. He doesn't say for most have sinned. He says for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That we have used our God-given freedom, the freedom that God built into us as people. We have used this freedom not to pursue God, not to follow God, not to chase after God, but to rebel against God's perfect love, do our own thing instead, alienate ourselves from the very one who designed us. Now, the punishment for sin, according to Scripture, is death. In fact, Paul himself says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. But here's the deal. God loves us so much that he came to us in the person of Jesus. God, God loves us so much, he so desperately desires to be in a relationship with us that he came to us in Jesus to take the punishment that we deserved. No ordinary human being could die for us. But Jesus was no ordinary human being. He was God incarnate. He was God in the flesh. 
Only Jesus was able to die for the sins of the world. On the cross, Jesus paid a price that he did not owe. He gave us grace that we didn't deserve. And we actually see, I always think it's helpful when you talk about something to see a demonstration of it. We actually see substitutionary atonement play out in this passage that we read from Mark. Barabbas, this, this revolutionary, this man who has committed murder in an uprising. Well, what happens to Barabbas? He's released. He's let go, even though he's responsible for many crimes. He's released. Meanwhile, Jesus, the man who's done absolutely nothing wrong, he hangs on the cross. As theologians like to point out, Barabbas is more than just a historical figure. Yes, he was a historical figure, but he's more than that. Theologically and spiritually, Barabbas stands in for us. I'm Barabbas, you're Barabbas. We are guilty of a crime deserving death, and yet Jesus, the Son of God, takes our place. Now, there's no question that this whole concept of Jesus taking our place, it was easier to grasp in a culture 2,000 years ago where animals were routinely sacrificed to atone for sin. So some of us may still struggle with the whole idea of Jesus dying on the cross, wondering if that was really necessary. And I suspect the reason for that is that we haven't fully grasped the seriousness of sin and just how deep sin runs in all of us. Back in the 1980s, when Mike Wallace was the host of 60 Minutes, he did a story one evening on Adolf Eichmann. Remember Adolf Eichmann? One of the principal architects of the Holocaust. Eichmann worked right alongside Adolf Hitler. He was responsible for the deaths of millions and millions and millions of Jewish people, not to mention countless others. And so on 60 Minutes that night, Mike Wallace began the program by asking viewers, how is it possible for anybody to be the way that Adolf Eichmann was? Was Eichmann a lunatic? Was he a monster? Was he crazy? And then Wallace asked this question. Even more frightening than that, was he normal? Well, the program then cut to a clip of Eichmann's 1961 trial. After World War II was over, uh, he ran away, but then eventually he was captured and he was put on trial for his crimes against humanity. Well, during this trial, and you see a picture of it up here on the screen, Yahael Denor uh, was being brought in to testify. Denor was a concentration camp survivor. In fact, he had been sent to Auschwitz. And he was being brought in to testify. And so he sees Eichmann in the courtroom. And he hadn't seen Eichmann in the 18 years since he had sent him to Auschwitz. And all of a sudden, Denor just froze solid. He couldn't move. And then he started weeping. And then as you see in this picture, uh, this next picture over here, he fainted and collapsed and they had to carry him out of the courtroom. So Mike Wallace is interviewing Denor and he says, well, why did you collapse in the courtroom when you saw Adolf Eichmann? Was it fear? Was it hatred? Was it the recalling of all those horrific memories? And Denor said, no, it was none of that. All of a sudden, he said, as I saw him sitting there, I realized for the first time that he was not this monster that I had imagined. He was an ordinary person like anybody else in this world. 
And then he said this. It's up here on the monitor. I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. That is terrifying to me. What the norm meant, there is capacity for great evil in all of us as human beings. Now, the reality is, sin, in all likelihood, won't manifest itself in that sort of way, like it did in Adolf Eichmann. But it will manifest itself in other ways. Sin is serious, with serious consequences, and yet God loves us so much that God came to us in Jesus to be our substitute, to take the punishment that we deserved. Folks, salvation and forgiveness aren't free. They're free to us, but they're not free. They come at a cost. And in the case of God, they cost God his own life. What kind of king is this? Well, as we said in the beginning of the sermon, he's a different kind of king. And so I end my message with this quote uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the great Lutheran theologian. A king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. A king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. Perhaps, but as far as I'm convinced, and I've been convinced of this since I was a 16-year-old when I gave my life to God, it's the only kingdom worth being a part of. And Jesus is the only king, the only king worth following and giving our lives to. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are king. You didn't come in the manner that we imagined you would, but nevertheless you came and you died to atone for our sin, to pave the way so that we might have a reconciled relationship with you. Thank you so much for your great love. We will never fully comprehend it. And I pray, God, that if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't surrendered their life to you, King Jesus, that that person would be inspired to do so now. To simply say, Lord Jesus, King Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner in need of salvation and forgiveness. And so as I give myself to you by your grace, I pray that you would give me these things. And for those of us here this morning, those of us online who have made that our prayer already, we recognize how easy it is to be like the sheep that Isaiah talked about who stray away. We all stray away. And so God, we recommit ourselves to you by your grace and by your power. Help us to live in such a manner that more and more people might come to understand your love for them in Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.